and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, this being episode number 132, and it's the first one in May. There was a public holiday in the UK this week, and there's an extra day off school tomorrow, and there's also an election this week, so busy times. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it feels like it's been a whirlwind week, and it's only half done. Lots of interviews done, and still to do, and word this week that the World Cheese Awards in Oviedo in Spain is going ahead. I'm really hopeful that by the fall we will be travelling again, and that the spikes that we're seeing in some countries have all died down. Not that it's all going to be that easy. I think I'm going to have to start taking notes for this podcast, because there were at least three things that I wanted to mention, but of course I've now forgotten all of them. One of them was even almost amusing. The walk this week took us to the Forest of A, which sounds very Canadian, eh? But it's spelled A-E, and there are plenty of ways it could be pronounced, but it turns out that it's pronounced A. It's obviously a huge area for mountain biking because there isn't a visitor centre there, but there is a bike shop, and it was teeming with mountain bikers, but we did find some nice paths that were free of wheels, and it was a very pleasant day in spite of the narrow roads and the cheesy 80s music playing on the radio to get there. Not that that stopped me singing along. Of course, yesterday was also what has become known as Star Wars Day, May the 4th, and it's also got a bit of a drumming connotation as well because it's 5-4, which is an interesting time signature. Star Wars Day also meant me trying to prevent my son looking at the Star Wars Lego online and failing. Some of that stuff is like a mortgage payment. So I should let you know who our guests are this week. We have our usual three conversations and they are with... Richard Troman, Senior Development and Application Chef at Kerry Europe and Russia, Jimmy Robinson, owner of Robinson's Ice Cream, and Moyad Abushukhedim, food scientist and founder of Foodative. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at Stone X. So we should head over to the news from the past week. Finnish dairy cooperative Valio is to spin off its Valio Oddly Good to accelerate international growth. GEA launched the KDB3 Dairy Centrifuge Skid for fresh cheese production. And Frischpack Group is investing in the future through one of its plants. Sophie's Bionutrients has developed what it says is the world's first dairy-free microalgae-based milk alternative, Rousselo opened its upgraded lab in Brazil, and Alfa Laval expanded its valve range to improve aseptic processing efficiency. The European Milk Board says the future of milk depends on attracting more young farmers. And we had a couple of financial results published this week from Ely and Lando Lakes. It was another bumper month for our roundup of new products, and I realized, given the size of the world and the number of companies in it, that it was just the tip of the iceberg. So if you are at a company with new products, please do send them along for inclusion in that monthly feature. And by send them along, I mean send the information. You don't actually have to send the products. Christian Hansen launched its next generation of Fresh Q food cultures for fermentation-enabled bioprotection of dairy products, and in New Zealand, Sinlay launched a premium ingredients offering and reset its emissions targets. 
And of course, you can read all of these in full and many more at DairyReporter.com. So let's get to this week's interviews. I'll keep the introduction to this one brief, but it's another in what I'd like to think of as a series of features on innovation and cutting-edge food technology. Fooditive is a company based in the Netherlands that upcycles third-grade and side streams of fruit and vegetables into natural products. To tell us about the company and its products is the founder, Moyad Abushokedim. Usually when I do these interviews, I ask about the background of the company, but I wonder if you could share a little bit of your own background, because it seems that that's kind of shaped your life and your goals and the company itself. Absolutely. So first of all, I really thank you so much, Jam. My name is Moyad, and I actually, I moved to the Netherlands in 2016, and I was 21 when I moved to the Netherlands, just freshly graduated from Food Science University. When I was actually a food science student, I was quite enthusiastic on being the hero of changing the world in food industry. Like every young kid who believed that they can make things happen. But it started as a very funny joke of, can I make an impact? And being a Jordanian with a very low amount of education and quite small opportunities in my hometown, uh, and coming to Europe to build that dream, really. Luckily enough, when I moved to the Netherlands, uh, the doors opened for me. I was lucky that I was able to tell my ideas and tell my story to people who uh, believed in change, believed that even though you could be really almost nobody from Jordan with a big dreams and quite no amount of money almost, I had almost 20 euros in my pocket and big dreams. And I moved to the Netherlands with one-way tickets. From that moment on, I started my first company. It was very exciting, two years. Uh, after two years of my first company, which was specialized in fermentation of alcohol without the use of sugar, I sold that company two years later. It showed that I can do this. Uh, it showed that people are interested in what I'm saying. And that from that moment on, in 2018, uh, I knew I had my big idea in my head, Fooditive, and the dream started since then. All right. So how did you do all that with just 20 euros in your pocket? I would say luck played a big uh, role in this. I really took a big gamble in my life, really, because I knew it was a challenge to start in general, but I had a big aim to speak to people who can actually make an impact, tell them my story. And I kept believing that it was not an easy way. I had to keep going, browse people on LinkedIn, just kind of like, please let me tell you my story. Maybe you will invest in me somehow. And I was lucky enough after three months, I got a great group of investors who believed that, yes, we can make an impact. We can make a change in the alcohol industry. And so how did the the Fooditive, how did that come about? And obviously it's a slightly different principle. Absolutely. Uh, Fooditive was really uh, my dream when I was a kid. I have always been very curious about sugar. And I had a really funny story when I was a kid. I was always putting sugar spoon in my mouth and just closing it, just eating it like this. And I was always being told off 
because like this is bad. Uh, a while later, I really learned the complexity of this ingredient. It was so magical. It's like it was so like it's white. It's like a diamond. And when I was studying food science, I learned more about this magical ingredient. But I've also learned the negative part of this magical ingredient. And I thought I need to make it better. So I, of course, I tried to do what any other scientist would have is to make it itself better. But unfortunately, I couldn't. And then I was able to reverse engineer the sugar and make something which is similar to sugar itself. That's how the idea came. I was actually 18 years old and uh, it was exciting because I was like, oh, I'm going to make a sweetener. I'm going to make a sugar replacement that is good for us. What products do you have and how do you develop those products? Most of the products that we have in our portfolio and Fulative uh, has its own story. Our sweetener really came from being insisting that I need to develop a healthier sugar. And our other products, it came from uh, the understanding of the supply chain that we have in the industry, lacks of plant-based uh, substitute for the A numbers, uh, a substitute for a green label specifically. And our latest two products that we released uh, last year, uh, our vegan casein, which is our milk formulation, and our fat replacers. What what are the products derived from? Are they, do they come from, uh, how, how do you create the products? When we started Fulative, it was the product first, and then we sort of found the raw material. However, recently, as soon as we evolved more with circular economy and sustainability, we started finding the highest source of science streams in our industries, and we make a product out of it. So we more understand what there is side streams. This way we know we're not producing something that is going to create an additional CO2 consumption. Our recent product, our fat replacer, it's produced from the seed of avocado. And it's one of the ingredients that is definitely being thrown out right now. And it's quite remarkable that we are producing something that is being thrown in the trash of our homes or our producers for guacamole or something. And our, our vegan casein is produced from bees. It's a very cheap raw material, but also it's a raw material that can actually be easily found in many supply chain in many countries. And, and did I read that you have used banana skins as well for products? Or? Correct. Our latest development that we have developed also, it's a sweetener that's produced from banana skin. It's a quite interesting sweetener because it's a sweetener that will definitely create an impact, especially in South America, uh, due to the high harvest of banana. And this way we will provide a sweetener which is way affordable, yet it also still have a great functions and availability worldwide. And, and what kind of products can your ingredients be used in? Well, mostly everything to the level that we use it in food and beverage. Yet also it has the ability to be used in pharmaceutical ingredients, such as toothpaste, mouthwash, medicine. It can definitely cover off the unpleasant taste in medicine. The use of sweeteners right now, it has been used in many variation. And uh, currently right now, we're even trying sweeteners for horse food due to the intake that they need. I assume that because they're from natural sources, they're all clean label? 
Correct. So everything we do is 100% clean label. Everything we do is a label that the end consumers can understand and relate to. We don't like complex words. We don't like complex terms. We just want something that people can understand or even have it in their own home almost. And are these easy ingredients for manufacturers to incorporate into their own products and are they cost effective for them to use? Wonderful question. One of the things that we kept in mind is what the producers actually have a struggle with. First of all, financial aspect. Many terms, many in decision-making process for companies goes becoming based on price cost. We made sure that our end raw materials are very cost effective because our mission is to make healthy food affordable. So our, all our raw materials are a very affordable prices for everybody. And that's what our promise always informative. From a perspective of usage, our raw materials are quite easy to blend in ingredients. You don't need complex recipe. You can easily replace it based on uh, your existing recipe. And therefore, it will not create and need any further development or further work. And sometimes ingredients have things like aftertaste or other things that mean that you need more ingredients to take care of the ingredients that you're putting in. I guess they're all neutral in that respect. We really believe that to excel in functions of raw materials, we really need to understand the purpose of them. What's really important in Fudative, we understood the full functions of the product. In Fudative sweetness specifically, we reverse engineer sugar, and that's what allowed us to have a product that you don't need to add any additional ingredients. It's actually fulfill all of the list that you need. It can work as a preservative. It has no aftertaste, but most importantly, it can, it can easily uh, create uh, the same texture that you wish for from a sugar. And you can you don't need to add any additional ingredients to it. It's easy to use, and it just uh, needs to be blended with other raw materials. And clearly, it must help with things like um, food waste and and also with um, even with obesity. We of course uh, are not allowed to promote health terms without actual claims. However, we, of course, make sense that due to the zero calorie products, it definitely promotes a healthier lifestyle. It's the lower amount of calories that actually will be as an intake, the more uh, we are promoting a healthier way of living. I think also what's really important is the sustainability side of it. We are actually dealing with more than 60 tons per week of side streams, especially from apples and pears. This side streams comes from either juice producers, we buy their bulb to produce our sweetener, apple manufacturer, apple pie manufacturers, they use a lot of side streams, third grade fruits or ugly fruits. So we maintain that we can get all of this because our process is very unique and can easily handle any type of science streams. We maintain that they go in, in a very strict cleaning process. And do you have any partnerships that help you to achieve all of this? Because obviously you, you've, you've got quite a lot of uh, ingredients that you can use in a huge variety of products. Absolutely. We cannot thanks enough to the, our partners because we could not have done any of this without them. 
uh, our producers in uh, Bodak in the Netherlands, whom are constantly producing our products in the Netherlands. Uh, we cannot thank enough our fruit suppliers and our farmers in the Netherlands. Unfortunately, I don't want to miss any names and I don't want to be rude to <laughs> miss one. We really are quite thankful to everyone whom uh, supporting us in their supply chain. We maintain that our sustainability isn't only in uh, our environment, but also in social. So we pay very fair price to those side streams. We give that as a becoming a source of income for the farmers. Uh, we don't want to just take it for free. We actually ask everybody whom I have them that we will pay full price for it. And where are the ingredients that you produce available? Is it just within the Netherlands or is it worldwide? At this moment in time, our products are mostly focused in the EU. You can find our raw materials in other, many products actually. In fact, uh, our products are used in ingredients that you might already consume, such as jams. We have them in the Netherlands, France and Germany. Also in uh, beverages in Germany. We have an ice cream company called Digi, uh, which produces plant-based ice cream, which covered in all over Europe. And you can find all of those ingredients and all of those products in a nearby supermarket. Uh, however, mostly uh, for sure you can find them in nearby supermarkets in the Netherlands uh, due to the fact that our main focus at this moment in time is the Dutch market. And I see that you've got quite a few new products coming up this year. How important is constantly developing new products to the company? That is very important to stay up to date with, with the innovation and to stay up to date with the market need. We had to keep innovation up and going. We as a company, we invest almost 25% of our profit every year on R&D. We believe that continuing investment in R&D and understanding of those products is, is viral for a startup like us to continue. Our new products that we're releasing in the market this year are going to be incredibly nice. One of them is our vegan milk. It's going to taste really good because it has the same taste and texture of a normal milk. We have excelled the flavor, we've excelled the price, and uh, it's going to be available as a powder texture to be uh, sold in retail and, uh, and actually B2B starting actually from September 2021. If somebody comes to you and says that they have a side stream that you don't use yet, are you able to work with them and try and develop something from that? This is where the exciting really for me gets me because that's where the challenge comes. We love a challenge like this. We always ask our partners and we always reach out to companies whom have a, a, a side stream issue to start this as a project, as an R&D project. And we find the best use for those side streams. We also make sure that this, the best use of those side streams isn't only visible from perspective, but also from a financial perspective. One of the problems we want to encourage people is it has to be affordable enough for them to see a visibility of it for the long term. So we, we make sure that it's not only produced, but also it's visibly profitable. And of course, it's good for us, but also it's good for our planet. All right, that's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Absolutely. I would love actually to invite more people to join our mission. We don't believe Foodative is just a company. Foodative is a mission. It's, it's just something we stand for, all of us together. Being plant-based, 
being a sustainable company, being a company that advocates against food waste. We don't believe we, as a company, a company. We are a, a movement, a movement that we ask people to join, being an ambassador for us. We welcome always investors, uh, people who want to work with us. So it's an ask for people who believe in what we stand for to join us. And we are more than delighted that people who believe in a change can become a part of Foodative. Northern Ireland is next. Jimmy Robinson, owner of Robinson's Ice Cream in Craigavon, Northern Ireland, has won the Ice Cream Van of the Year 2021. It's a competition held every year by the Ice Cream Alliance, the trade association for the ice cream sector for the UK and Ireland. Robinson has three vans and three trailers operating in and around Craigavon, Portadown and Lurgan, and in parks in Lisburn and Belfast. And we chatted about his business and winning an award that, if you're on the website and can see the photo, is a pretty impressive-looking trophy. And I should point out to North American listeners what a 99 is. It has nothing whatsoever to do with Wayne Gretzky's jersey number, although that's probably not a good comparison anymore, as he's an older generation hockey player, to make me feel old. So a 99 is an ice cream with a flake chocolate bar pushed into the ice cream. And if you're not sure what a flake is, it's like a long finger of chocolate, but it's not completely solid. It's like wisps of chocolate, so it's very flaky and crumbly, hence the name flake. And it's made by Cadbury's. So now you know, and you can ask for one, as I remember doing in Toronto one time soon after I'd moved to Ontario in the late 80s and got the weirdest look. Actually, it was less of a look as more of a blank stare. Anyway, let's chat with Jimmy about ice cream. Have you already started for the season yet? We haven't stopped. I have ice cream bags in parks from the lettuce back in last year because the people aren't really allowed to go anywhere else by the parks. We've been lucky that way. So there's and the ice cream vans going round the run. I've been waiting busy too because a lot of people are at the home. And how many vans do you have and whereabouts in Northern Ireland are they stationed? We're based Craig Avenue and Port of Down, County Armagh, we would do with the ice cream vans. Two ice cream pans go round the runs, and then I, I would have a vintage van, an old comer, and I would do that in the park. We do a couple of local parks, and then we would have um, three or four parks maybe 20 miles away from us, Lisburn and, and one in Belfast, where we would, would have um, like an a ice cream unit, ice cream, and we do coffee too, like in them. They would permanently sit there. And how long have you been doing this? I started in 1985. I remember it well, like, you know. Do you still have the same van? No, no. It's a, a makeshift van that we started off in. Uh, we built it ourselves, in fact. It was an old ice cream van we owned, and we, we got an our CF Bedford, and we, we cut the roof and put it up, put it on. And, and just had a nice fr- old fridge in it. We, we scooped ice cream and used the chains out of it. We had that for about three, four years till I managed to buy something a wee bit better. And I guess there's ice cream in the family as well, because it, was it your grandmother that came over from it started, Italy? It started with my grandmother, although I was five or six when she died. I have a fake memory of her. I remember my granddad, he also died when maybe three or four years later. So that's where the ice cream came from. And my father done ice creams. All my cousins would have done it. The Robson say the family done ice cream off and on. You would have only done it in the six months of the year. They had ice cream bicycles and they used to sit out some safe parks in Belfast and that. 
they would push the bicycle through the park and back and forth. My granny made, made the ice cream in the house. And then they continued on, off and on. My father done it in the 60s. And then my, my brother had ice cream. He's 10 years old. I mean, he had an ice cream farm for maybe about 10 years in the 70s. I myself started in 1985. I used to play a bit of table tennis. And I had ambitions. I thought I could maybe make a career coaching out of it. And I was that coaching there, but there wasn't really enough money to, to make a living at it. So I just went part-time with the table tennis and I, I, I got myself my first ice cream fan and that's how I started ice cream. My grandmother made ice cream, hard ice cream, scooped ice cream. When I started, I was banned, scooped ice cream. Nobody kind of knows the recipe. They never kept the recipe. What I do now, we do soft ice cream. Do you have like different flavors, or is it just like the plain it's just vanilla? It's just vanilla. It's just vanilla. at the very start. I was doing scooped ice cream, but I was buying it from a local factory, and you could have got all the flavors you wanted. Like, but it, it was harder work, and there wasn't as big as profit as it in soft ice cream. Has what you sell the most of changed over the years? Still, the, the best seller would be a, a ninety-nine comb with a flake, but. Still an awful lot of amount of tubs of ice cream, various sizes of different tubs. And as I say, they have Nick about glory tubs and pudding pots and with different sprinkles in them. That seems to be very, very popular now. But it's still hard to beat the traditional 99. And also ice cream with a dip on it is also very popular. I imagine a lot of other things have changed over the past 35 years. I started there in the CF Badford. There was no heater in it. You were froze to death in it. You, were, you probably had to push it most mornings to get her started. The industry, you know, ice cream machines are far superior now as well. I mean, obviously, the, the other thing that seems to have changed in the past 35 years is the politics of Northern Ireland. Is that Has that made a, a big difference as well? It was hard and scary being an ice cream man. And then this, I'm probably one of the very few that did go in and out of both areas. People were saying, are you not scared or going in there or not there? And I said, well, I'm just the only cream and it was hard work and it was frightening too. But times have changed and, and, and I can say that I'm going into just areas, different areas when seeing kids grow up for a night, got children and you go through two or three generations and now my son's night, he's doing areas too and we've always been accepted going around them, which is good. How did the pandemic affect your business? Obviously, you'd have to do all of the social distancing and masks and taking payments over card and that kind of thing. Card payments went, have went through the race. I didn't have a card reader maybe two years ago. And then I put one on and there was only bits and pieces. We, we put them on for the, really for the parks and the trailers and that there. We were getting people asking for them. But now, your payments is maybe 70% card payments to 30% cash, where it was Easily the other way around. To start, we didn't know what way it was going to go. We lost the first eight weeks with it. Put the screens up and sanitizer, we had the gloves on, the masks on. So we were one of the first to get all that going and get ready for when they were going to let us back out to work. We have been lucky. We were able to create and, and that the people were going nowhere. They're, they're in their houses. So there's more people in their houses and business hasn't been bad. And now you've won the ice cream van of the year. How did that come about? It's called the ice cream mobile of the year. It came second two years ago. I've had it two or three times, so have. And it's a good honour. Do you mean it prestige to your the business and again a, a good bit of publicity about it there? I see the picture of you with the trophy there. It's quite the trophy. Uh, I think it's just slightly bigger than the normal one they give for some reason, there, but it, it's an it's a nice trophy, so it is. And 
very proud of it. It's called the Ice Cream Alliance that run it. Usually they have a three-day show, an exhibition and a show of trade stands and things in Harrogate every year. You get through the final three, you, you tell your story to them, and then you get interviewed on the day of, the last day of the show. You get interviewed by five judges, and they ask you five or six different questions. But it, it, it's quite exciting. It's very well done. And now it's over to Kerry to talk about creating a plant-based alternative to the cheese slice for food service with Richard Troman, Senior Development and Application Chef at Kerry Europe and Russia. In the good old days, vegan cheese slices were, you could, there was one brand and it was expensive, it tasted like plastic it, and it melted like plastic as well. So what's created the need for improvement in that area? You kind of answered it to start with. The, the, the simple fact that they are or were expensive, tasted of plastic and melted terribly. Um, there, was, there was a gap. The solutions that were being offered weren't sufficient. And to be honest, I think anybody could see that from the outside looking in. But we also did a massive amount of proprietary research ourselves into the area. And we found that the vast majority of uh, vegans and vegetarians, when asked, vegans more primarily, when asked where they were being forced to compromise, cheese always came out top of the list. There was just wasn't a good cheese alternative. So armed with that information and the simple fact that like, we can all agree that a lot of the alternatives available right now just do not do the job. It presents itself as a simple course of action to try and rectify that. It just seems that in the last couple of years, there's been an exponential increase in the number of products, but it hasn't necessarily translated to an exponential increase in the quality of them. That's fair. And I think there's quite a few different reasons for that. I mean, I can't speak for our competition. I think it would be unfair for me to do so. But one thing I have noticed is that a significant number of people producing these uh, vegan cheese alternatives actually don't have a dairy heritage or dairy experience. So that can limit them. Whereas Kerry as a business have been positioned in dairy for 30 years. Anyway, started out as a dairy cooperative, but also we work very, very closely with food service operators, um, like the big fast food chains and such. So we're very, very, very familiar with these type of products from a dairy perspective. So while some of our competition may be slightly hamstrung by a lack of experience here, we find we're not. And that's really helped us make kind of strides in all the areas you pointed out and the areas that they render the, uh, the products too much of a compromise for everyone. That said, huge amounts of innovation, huge amounts of work being done in um, the vegan cheese space in general. There's some really exciting stuff out there being made by small operators and, and what have you, and they're really kind of pushing the envelope. But I think nothing beats a familiarity of the product and a familiarity of the market. What characteristics are consumers looking for now in cheese alternative slices? I guess flexitarians and those that are new to vegan and vegetarian diets are looking for proximity to the original. Absolutely. I mean, all the points um, you mentioned earlier where current alternatives are kind of lacking, people are looking for things that are closer to the real deal. But um, we actually, and again, this is based off of our, our kind of our heritage working in this space, is we actually look at two potential points of view on the product. And there's the consumer, the person who's going to ultimately be tasting the product, but also the operator, the person who's going to be using it. So not only is there like an area where you have to consider the taste, the appearance, the melt and the mouthfeel, overall texture and its performance in a burger or in a hot application like that but also how easy is it to use does it peel or does it snap does it look appetizing is it easy for your operators to tell apart from the standard products and use accordingly so there's 
so many different potential variables. But ultimately, if you can't produce a product that matches current dairy or at least gets very, very close to it, you need to go back and look again. You mentioned the fact that you've got this heritage in dairy and, and in cheese. What are the challenges that you needed to overcome in order to be able to make that transition? Essentially, processing is one of the big issues that we had with this product. So um, I don't know how familiar you are with the processing or the production of standard vegan cheese alternatives. The vast majority are blocks. And again, I can't speak to all our competitors in the entire market, but in general, they'll produce a block of cheese alternative that is then sliced to produce slices. And in order for it to be physically robust enough to do that, to survive that process, it needs to be quite starchy. And that tends to lead to thicker and more brittle slices with a poorer melting characteristic. And so one of the key challenges we wanted to overcome was the ability to actually make it like a processed cheese slice, i.e. on a roller. So it needed that flexibility, that resilience, that general texture. So it would behave like a standard product. In partnership with that is the fact that like making it taste appropriate, making it look appropriate and making it melt and behave appropriately. These were all big challenges and think areas that weren't well served in the market. So lots, I guess, is the short answer to that one. There was a lot to change. <laughs> in the same way that musicians have an issue when it comes to, is the album finished or not? Is there ever that same kind of issue with food where you think, well, is it perfect or should we still keep going? When do you reach that point when you say, okay, we're good to go? That's actually a great question. Um, so the way you will generally work is via benchmarking. I think everyone does the same. So you pick your target and you shoot for it. And we were fortunate enough, the target we were shooting for is one of our own products as well. So it's our Kerry Made Original Slice, which is uh, one of the market leading burger slices available. We benchmarked that in the first instance. So we tasted it, we understood it, we constructed a, a profile for it. We had the language in place so that we could all describe it effectively. And then we went after it through our development process. And then when we went to sensory um, and went to actually testing it on the un unsuspecting members of our business and other people as well, it was that framework and it tested it against that benchmark. So once we approached a product that provided us with something that did not have a significant degree of difference to our benchmark, that's when the album's finished, as it were. The fact that I think our understanding, our expertise, our capability in this area is ever improving who knows, like in a few years time, we'll be producing something even better. But I think what we have right now is absolutely the finished article. So we're very happy with it. And, and what sets it apart from other vegan slices that are currently out there? Well, uh, we touched upon it um, briefly before, but I think aside from the taste and texture, which are both far and away superior, again, based on our sensory testing, but also based on feedback we've had from people who've tasted the product better than the competitive set. I'd say the key difference and the thing that makes this product absolutely unique in the market is the fact that it peels, the fact that it is um, delivered in exactly the same format as a traditional burger slice that customers would use. So operationally, it's identical and it behaves the same way on cooking also. So if you were to make yourself a, a vegan burger, apply the slice to it, it will melt around the burger and adhere in the build in exactly the same way that a traditional slice would too. And there's just nothing out there that does that. Sometimes it's the timing of things as well. Some mm. of the some of the existing products do melt, but by the time it's melted, your burger is crisp. That's an important factor is how long it takes to get to that stage. Absolutely. Well, like again, because of our knowledge and uh, understanding of the food service market, this slice was actually developed with a quick service restaurant style approach in mind. And what I mean by that is you'd be making a uh, vegan 
cheeseburger or vegan burger. And then traditionally in a QSR restaurant, what you would do is you'd make your burger, you'd apply your slice to a hot burger, finish making your burger, wrap it up, and then put it somewhere to be served. And it'd be two to three minutes before it would get to a customer at the, at the fastest. We have designed it so that our product will melt over the burger within those two to three minutes with the residual heat from the core. That was the brief. Whilst you can pop it back in the oven, pop it back under a grill to achieve a, a melt as well, the fact that we've designed it with that in mind means we have a head start there. So it's just a much more natural and easy to use product overall. When you mention that, though, it must be something that, okay, it works on a burger, but then do, do you have to test it in a lot of different capacities, like with a, a regular burger or a chicken burger or vegan chicken burger? Or do you have to test it on a variety of different products? Absolutely. So um, in the development process, because we were specifically targeting like a, a vegan cheeseburger application, that's where we tested it throughout the development process. But now that we have the product and it's finalized and we know where we are, that's when we're looking into all sorts of different hot applications as well. And also some cold applications. The product is specifically designed for hot application, which is something that we make clear on the packaging and in the communication, but it's something that the customer needs to be aware of. It's now up to me to find as many different homes for this product as it suits. Because at the end of the day, and again, this is something from our food service uh, experience, is customers love ingredients that do multiple jobs. And there's little space in a busy kitchen for a product that has one job. So now we find some more. But as you say, like vegan chicken burgers, it works perfectly. Hot sandwiches, toasted sandwiches, it works incredibly well. And then we've also looked into applications in like paninis, sub rolls, things like that. You mentioned the fact that, it, that it's the same as a traditional cheese slice in terms of cooking, but in terms of cost effectiveness, is it something that people have to pay a premium for in the same way as you have to pay for almond milk extra when you go to Starbucks? This is a difficult question for me to answer directly. I know that we are very cost effective, but I have no visibility on what our competitors would be charging for a similar product, nor do I really know what each and every different vendor would be charging for it too. I know we've done a lot of work to make sure that our product is as cost effective as possible. But I can't guarantee, unfortunately, that that cost effectiveness will either be passed on or not. I agree with you. There does appear to be a premium that's applied to vegan alternatives, be that due to additional operational restrictions or cost of the raw materials. I can't speak to that. But I, yeah, I know we've done loads of work to try and make sure that isn't the case because one of the guiding principles of this project is to create a product that means a customer would not need to compromise. And there are many forms of compromise and having to pay more just as a barrier to entry so you can enjoy it is a compromise. So that's something we're against. Is this something that's going to be directly available for consumers in the supermarkets or is it primarily aimed at food service? This is a food service only product. As far as I know for the future, this will remain a food service only product. We focus specifically on that area and I think the requirements of retail are subtly different. And is it already being picked up by companies? Yeah, absolutely. We're getting an awful lot of um, interest, a great deal of traction with this product. I'd say, watch this space. I can't tell you who, I can't tell you what, but it's, yeah, it's, it's something that I think the market was ready for it. As we already kind of established, the current offerings don't quite do the job that's needed. So how important is the cheese alternative sector to the company and, and how are you trying to work with that? To be honest, everybody can see the demand for cheese alternatives and dairy alternatives is growing. And again, as I said before, that said, there's absolutely no substitute for real dairy and Kerry and Kerry made built on dairy heritage. And that is always where we're going to be from. But we will be continuing to look at this. We will be continuing to seek to serve our customers with cheese alternatives that don't have a compromise attached to them. And it's definitely an area of growth. 
that we are going to keep a close eye on. But we think we're best positioned to take advantage of it. Again, like I said, our dairy heritage kind of uh, gives us a leg up. Kerry Made will always be first and foremost a dairy brand. That is guaranteed. Now we're staying in Ireland for the latest updates on the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at Stone X. This week saw um, dairy butter futures and dairy skim and powder futures uh, relatively flat on the week. Similar to maybe the overall GDT level yesterday where it was down 0.7% overall. Now within that yesterday butter did take a, a bit of a hit down around 12% but really that was probably just realigning Kiwi butter prices with um, with global butter prices. May-June butter on the European futures was maybe a bit stronger, up around the 40, 80, 90 level. Quarter three, uh, relatively flat around the 4100 level. Quarter four was maybe up slightly to around 4130, 35 level. And quarter one then uh, remained around the 39, 80, 90 level. Skim milk powder, a bit stronger at the front of the curve. Um, May-June was up maybe around 25 euros to 25, 90 level. Quarter three was up maybe around 15 euros to 2600 level. Quarter four still remained around the 2600, 2610 level. Quarter one also around the same level, 2575, 2800 level. Whey was off slightly, maybe just under, you know, trading around 1000 euros a ton level. Thanks, Liam. We'll catch up with you again next week. Stone X, formerly INCLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for this episode of the podcast. I have lots more interviews to do this week, two of them tomorrow when there's no school, and the community centre opposite the house is being used for voting. So for once, it may be a little noisy, not that I'm going to go and count cars or face masks. We also have a terrible weekend of weather forecast, so I have no idea what I'm going to do. I suppose I could just go out and get wet, but I'm not sure that that will really appeal to the rest of the family or the dog. Anyway, I hope that wherever you are, you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.